You are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. We really do appreciate that every week. WalterParks.com, if you're interested in hearing more of Walter's music. Uh, we're sponsored by twice five miles guides guidebooks that help you get your work over the finish line if you're interested in that twice five miles.com thank you davine dial for managing wpvm fm we are always happy to be on air and today i have a a friend of mine on with us his name is roger bonaragar roger and i met many years ago and i say many it's certainly over 20 now and we met when we were working together loosely in the spoken word poetry slam community and back in the day poetry slam was a big deal for a lot of people and roger was one of the leaders of that movement way back when as as i was too so when roger and i met we were much younger and we really had a great time so roger's a poet roger's a producer he's he's a musician an activist, and all sorts of things. We will let that story unfold. So, Roger Bonaragar, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Navi. It's a, it's good to have you in, an, in yet another conversation. We've had many over yeah. the years. So I would like to, to begin by asking you to tell our audience how you are able to maintain your enthusiasm and your momentum with the literacy movement, more than spoken word, it's the literacy movement in your life. And you've been doing it for a long time. And I was thinking before we talked, I thought, you know, I'd love to know how Roger keeps keeps it moving with such enthusiasm. And we'd like to know how long you've been at this. That's a great, great question, Abby. A really rich ground to try to plow uh, especially from the perspective of uh, what's my history with literacy. I think I ought to begin by saying that my mom was an English teacher and a high school principal. And I come from a family of educator women from generations back and a community in Trinidad and Tobago that is a community of educators and education. How that came to be so is a separate generational, literally historical story about that corridor that I live in in Trinidad and the people that we've produced. I have been understanding in one way or another since my childhood that literacy, that reading and writing was very central to my existence and to how I understood myself. My aunt taught preschool and kindergarten and she was revered up until her death at age 90 as a miracle worker of a teacher where it came to preschool instruction. My mother developed a massive reputation as well as an English teacher at St. George's College in Trinidad and Tobago, and then as a principal of that school. And so that's the ground out of which my development as a writer and somebody connected to literacy comes. My mother introduced me to poetry very, very early on and introduced me to, to the recitation of it. She understood certainly long before these kind of inane conversations of page versus stage, et cetera, et cetera. She understood that poetry existed because of what it represented in terms of the human voice. Where I came from, we did not understand poetry outside of its recitation. Even when you were dealing with the dead white men <laughs> form of poetry, you had to memorize and you had to recite. But when I was about nine or so, my mom and my stepfather got married in Canada. I joined them there for a short while because my dad was working with the Canadian government. We moved to Winnipeg, Canada, which for those of you who have any sense of geography is about six hours north of Minneapolis. And as cold as you can imagine that would be. And as white as you could imagine that might be. And I was the only black child in school there. And that was just about as harrowing as you could imagine that that would be. Though I don't think I understood it as harrowing at the time. What I did understand was I had permission to defend myself in a way that I wasn't given permission to fight when I was in Trinidad. 
And after having a lot of people call me names and getting into a lot of fights in the first three, four weeks I was at school there, having the principal say that we're going to be calling in your parents next time this happens, I alerted my mom that she would be called in. And she said to me at that point, I'm glad you're defending yourself, but that's it's going to get tiring fighting all the time. How about you write about what it makes you feel when these things happen next time? And I said, okay. And at age nine, I started to write and it meant I was getting into less fights because I could just pretend I didn't hear some stuff. And so at age nine, I was aware that writing was not an esoteric sort of act, that it did something. It allowed me to deal with a very real particular situation in my life. And certainly at that time, I could not have articulated it that way. This is what writing is for. All of these books that I've been reading somehow was doing something for the person who was writing them. A little bit older, I tried my hand at poetry because my mom used to make me recite poetry all the time. So by this time, we are back in Trinidad and I'm 13, as is the way of 13-year-old boys. I'm starting to worry about girls. And so I write a love poem. The, the subject of my love poem had hair the color of the sun and eyes the color of the sea. For the people who are listening and can't see me, that does not describe me <laughs> and, and certainly does not describe the majority of the people in Trinidad. And so my mom said, oh, that's interesting. Who is this poem about? And I said, uh, I don't know. And she said, uh, who's that girl you like? What, what's her name? And I said, Monique, yeah. He said, what does she look like? I said, uh, she's very dark and she's tall and she's big and she's beautiful and she's like what color are her eyes etc she's like write it about her and I wrote it about her also again without being able to articulate it in that moment I was very aware that poetry was supposed to be about my life and the ideals that I was going to exalt and lift up in my work could be about my life and the people around me and the places that I came from so I wrote poetry throughout my teen years. I migrated to New York at age 19, um, spent a lot of time doing a lot of nothing, getting into trouble, getting into fights, running the streets. The moment a friend took me to a poetry reading, it plugged me back in to how I was going to survive the planet. And so when you ask the question about how I maintain my enthusiasm for literacy all this time, it is because at every turn, that I have come back to the very literal idea of literacy as reading and writing. It has anchored me, it has helped me cope, it has saved my life. And so it, my enthusiasm is about my understanding that maybe it could do the same for others as well, and also a desperation that it continue to do that for me, because I need it to continue to do that for me. I don't get to some magical place where it's done the work for me and now I'm fine. It must continue to do that for me. And so I pursue it in myriad ways and in different forms. And it keeps me alive, gives me some sense of how I'm going to keep the young people I work with alive, how I'm going to keep my daughters alive. When you were talking about your relationship with poetry and describing how your mother introduced it to you at an early age, and I noticed the first thing you did as a writer was generate a poem about someone you cared about. You are calling it poetry out of the gate rather than, oh, I'm just writing or it's prose or it's this or that. This is a poem. Do you think that came because of the relationship you had with your, your mother and the way she introduced literature to you? So poetry rose to the top right away? Or how did you identify that so early and then continued identifying it? How did that happen? That's a great question. When we were in Canada and she said, write about this thing when it happens, somehow I knew I wasn't supposed to be writing poetry. I just wrote, right? This happened. This is what I felt. This is what happened before that. This is what I did in response. I understood that that was prose. I, I don't know if I knew the word prose then, but I understood that I was writing narrative here as opposed to poetry. But my mom introduced me even before that moment to what poetry was. 
I couldn't define for you what poetry is, and very many poets can't. I think anytime anybody asks us what that is, if we have half a brain, we hem and whore until we find another topic to talk about. <laughs> you know what I mean? Among the first poets that my mother introduced me to were Linton Quasey Johnson, the Jamaican dub poet, Edward Kamau Braffitt, Barbadian poet um, who recently passed um, beginning of this year, like just before the pandemic, Amiri Baraka. I'm living in Trinidad and Tobago, which is a former British colony. And so what I'm learning in the schools as poetry is not that, for sure. There, there are one or two West Indian poets that end up uh, on your syllabus, but a lot of it is the British masters, etc. right? The poetry of a different age and a different time. But again, my mom introduced me to a poetry that I know did something, that poetry that talked about the world. One of the very first things my mom had me memorize was Edward Kamau Braffitt's, oh man, how am I forgetting the title of this right now? But anyway, it was for some sort of church concert. My grandmother wanted me to prepare a poem. I'm guessing I'm seven maybe, right? And so understand that my mom is in her early 30s. She has studied in North America in the 60s. She has lived in New York and gone to school in Montreal, Canada at McGill University. And so she is very much in her young adulthood, even as she's back in Trinidad and raising a child, very much a product of the civil rights movement and the black power movement. And so, uh, and so she still has a little bit of that kind of also rebellious spirit. So she's like, okay, you're gonna memorize this poem for the concert. And the poem begins, it, 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 it is not, it, 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 it is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to be free. It is not enough to be free of the red, white, and blue of the drag, of the drag, of the dragon. And it goes on like this, right? So of course my grandmother put the kibosh on that. She's like, there's no way you are going to walk into my church and, <laughs> and read that. And so, you know, I had to, you know, I wonder why the grass is green and why the wind is never seen or something like that, ultimately. What I'm saying to you is that's what poetry was to me. So when she said to me, who is that girl? Go back and write it about the girl you know. I also understood what it was she was telling me. My mother told me, I think it might easily be every day of my life that I can remember. She reminded me that I was black and that I ought to be proud of that and that I ought to be proud of the people around me who were that. So it's not like she was bringing some new revelation to me when she was pointing out to me that I was writing this poem about a blonde, blue-eyed girl when right here, the girl I actually loved was a Black girl. So to come back to the answer to that question is that poetry was a vehicle for expressing and understanding my world in a number of registers, and I knew it did that. And so when I went to writing, when I understood that I needed to express myself, I went to poetry automatically. That made sense to me. You mentioned a few minutes ago how even to this day you are staying with it. You're, you're on top of the poetry and you're giving it to your children as well. Are you lifting up the idea of poetry and the poetic disposition as a form of nutrition? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, man. And not just poetry. I, I think ultimately art, right? Though I, I maybe could argue about the way in which poetry specifically becomes discursive or rebellious against language and how that language helps to formulate your cultural understanding of self. Understand that all of this is happening in Trinidad, in the center of a notion of myself as a child of Calypso, right? At the same time that my mom is teaching me these poems, I'm also learning. I was planning to forget Calypso and go and plant peas in Tobago, but I am afraid I can't make the grade. Cause every night I lie down in my bed, I hear in a basement in my head, bum, bum, pity, bum, bum, right? So I'm six years old and I'm learning that that is very much a part of the everyday Trinidadian 
life as well. That poetry in the Calypso, in the Kaiso, that was um, the mighty Shadow, by the way, um, Shadow's bass man. That is part of who I am as well. Yes, it is a meal, but it is a very specific kind of meal too. If now, as we understand that the best kind of eating is to eat only what's in season, is to eat the things from the place from which you come because they grow in the same soil that you came from and are particularly formulated for your body, then I understand my poetry and my language within that context as well, right? And so I must give that, that understanding of nourishment to my children. They're going to also understand what grows where they were raised. And that's going to create a different kind of melange of poetic nourishment that they understand and give them something even further complex to hand down to their own children that will keep them safe, that will keep them alive because they know who they are. When I ask you the question about poetry as nutrition, I had a sense of how expansive the answer could be. Until now, I've never thought of it as eating from the ground where the plants grow. And we also start in the before before. The notion of Black people reaching back to Africa, for instance, to figure out some of who they are and where they've come from has become understood that people do that. In America, of course, whiteness complicates that because whiteness cuts off a lot of origination story, a lot of indigeneity story about where people come from. It's, it's funny, I'm looking at um, these two Netflix shows right now. One of them is called The Last Kingdom. It's this supposition about kind of how England got born when these independent English city-states and kingdoms were fighting the Danes and whatnot. I, I was looking at another show from before that a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that I was very excited to see in it was an understanding, without explicitly talking about it, of an indigeneity among white people a tribalism, an understanding of the origin of Western European nations as tribal as well, that was really interesting, that was rooted as well in the land, in an understanding of the sacredness of the land, that white people at some point have that too. They have that and they have a different thing because in the Northern Hemisphere, land is supposed to feed you and they don't do that 24-7, 365 days a year, right? Land does that in Africa. I wonder what it means for people who call themselves white, who are white within the context of America, if they are thinking about poetry as a nourishment that they get from their potential indigeneity, and if they're willing to follow that indigeneity, at least in spirit, to some place before they were white, what would it mean to the poems that they create and therefore the world they create and the nourishment that they hand down from generation to generation to generation? Well, that takes you quickly on a thread way past the preconceived notions that we have grown up with here in the Western culture about where we start. I grew up in Western North Carolina around Asheville. Mm -hmm. The indigenous sense of land did exist with the mountaineers because mm -hmm. they came to the Western North Carolina region before the place was westernized. They arrived when the Cherokee lived there. And so folks would come from all, all different walks. Nobody really knows how many people came, but they do know that all kinds of folks came and they were getting away from something usually. So there was a land-based experience the mountain people had. And I think they still relate to that some. And you have Absolutely. that along the coast of Carolina. And you have it in some of the areas, but not so much in, in our modern culture. But as you were talking, I was thinking about starting at the southern tip of Africa and then just going all the way to the ice areas of the Arctic. At some point, all of that land wasn't wasn't divided up as we know it today. It was just land and sure. people lived on sure. it. Sure. So you're absolutely right. Everybody started out in little groups of people living in some sort of tribal situation. And here's the thing. I'm certainly not saying 
that one needs to give people your DNA and trace exactly what people you come from. In fact, I'm saying you shouldn't do that because they're taking and selling your DNA. Again, another story. But there are enough stories about who you are that every time you find out something new takes you back to a different understanding of who you are. And every generation you discover further back than the one you know. And I don't mean discover because somebody decided to preserve a record necessarily, though that is absolutely useful, but that you discover because somebody told a story, because somebody in your family you didn't know knew all these stories, you happened to ask them and all of a sudden, boom, a door is opened to three generations back from where you thought you knew. Your work, what you have in terms of nourishment, how far back you can go through the eggs that birthed you to your source changes who you are and changes what you create. Two years ago, I went home and I was asking questions. I went home, incidentally, because I work for an organization here called Freeride Arts and Literacy. We do arts instruction for criminalized youth. And one of the central ideas is the, of the work that we do is that transformative justice, restorative justice is at the center of that work, right? There is, of course, a lot being written and taught about restorative and transformative justice here in the US and people are scholars and people are pursuing PhDs along those ideologies. And I thought, since I am developing some sort of expertise in the role of that thinking in the educating of young people and in the educating of criminalized young people, I wanted to figure out in my own cultural understanding where there is restorative and transformative justice. How does it show up in where I come from? I know, for instance, Orisha, the spiritual system of the Yoruba of West Africans and the way in which it has come to the new world is definitely part of my history. I knew that, for instance. Among the things that I learned, because my dad, who is the ninth of nine children, um, took me to see his brother, who is the third of those children, probably six, seven years older than my dad, right? So he's in his mid-80s at this point. He is kind of the repository of all the family history. And so my dad says, so tell him about Orisha in the history. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, we used to have Shango feasts right here in the yard when I was a boy. The grandparents used to do such and such. And he described basically a Yoruba compound. Like that's how they lived. And so it was no longer theoretical at that point for me. But then he went on to describe something else that I knew existed in Trinidad, but I had no idea was part of my lineage. He said, our oldest ancestor is a man by the name of Richardson, who was American, a M-E-R-I-K-I-N, American. So in the War of 1812, here in the US, the British pulled up along the shores of South Carolina, Georgia, etc., sent word into the enslaved Africans, if you want to leave and come fight for us instead of America, when this war is over, we will grant you your freedom and give you land in some British protectorate somewhere. A number of those people said, that sounds good. Left, fought with the British, and after that was done, got land, many of them in Newfoundland, Canada, many of them in Trinidad and Tobago. The villages that they landed in still bear the names of their companies. So in the south of Trinidad, there are villages called Company 1, Company 2, Company 3, Company 4, Company 5, Company 6, right? Our oldest relative, therefore, is a man named Richardson who came on Company 5, and landed there somewhere early in the 1800s. That is being plugged back in to a part of my ancestry that is way further back than I, I had any idea that it was possible for me to find. And therefore changes for me, my orientation to who I am. Not only am I black and theoretically from Africa in many ways, uh, but I also come from a man who took an incredible risk to be free an incredible risk. Any bit of failure along that way meant instant death, right? And I'm sure he understood quite certainly that he wasn't sure if these people would live up to their word, right? But he had to take the chance. That changes how I write about the land. 
right? That changes how I write about myself and about my responsibility and relationship to the land. He was dropped in virgin forest and had to figure it out with the people he came with, with the indigenous people there, figure out their flora and fauna that he was accustomed to, and therefore what to do with it and how to live. Inside of that blood rhythm that I now have, that is now new to me, is a different way to parse language and to write poems. I want that for everybody who gives a damn about freedom, who gives a damn about a world in which people are no longer oppressed, a world in which people are free to pursue living with the land how they choose. On that note, Roger, I would like to just take a pause for that good story to sink in and and just remind folks you're tuned into Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. Uh, first broadcasting on WPVM LF 103.7, Asheville, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. I'm your host, James Nave, sponsored by Twice Five Miles Guides, the stuff that nobody teaches you. It'll help you get. <laughs> Over the over the creative finish line, twice5miles.com. Thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song. We appreciate it. WalterParks.com, by the way. Devin Dial as the station manager, always there for us at WPVMFM. We appreciate that. And if you'd like to learn more about WPVMFM, the website is WPVMFM.org. You can make a small donation or a large one if you like to help support what we do in community radio. Nonprofit belongs to all of us. And uh, I would also like to, to say, if you would want to reach out to me, try Nave at jamesnave.com, Nave spelled N-A-V-E. I'd love to, to love to hear from you. And so with that, I'd like to get back to this, this conversation that we were talking about. And as you were talking, you realized that one of your relatives came out of somewhere in the Southeast. South Carolina, I think, is what my uncle said. I One of the things about storytelling like this that's good is that you get the opportunity to go back and ask again. And every time you ask again, you get an additional piece. Because when you're hearing news like this for the first time, your head explodes. So it doesn't retain everything. I have an uncle who is Nigerian, for instance, and I was talking to him just the other day, and I only met him in my 30s. And so we've had to piece together some of my mother's heritage as well to figure out some things. And so, of course, at this point, we've hung out any number of times, many, 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 many times, and shared many, many, many stories. And he called me the other day to say he was going to Nigeria for a couple of months to take care of some business, just to let me know he wasn't in the country. And just quite casually, we're talking, and I end up finding extra stuff again about my mother's side of the family and who we are which corroborates some stuff about our connection to indigeneity there with the Kalinago peoples in St. Vincent and in other islands of the Eastern Caribbean. When I consider not just for what it could give the poems, but for the storytelling itself and what truths it connects you to your line going forward, that, that becomes very important to my understanding of who I am as a poet. All of those exposures, they can, if you're willing, to allow them to inform you and influence you, they, they will do that. Could you offer us a piece of poetry so folks could hear what you do poetically? Would that sure, be something sure. that would work for us? Yeah, for no you would certainly work for me. I, I would <laughs> like to hear, to hear that. And, and while Roger is thinking about that, I, I will just fill in by saying that Roger has at least two or three books. I know I've read two of them for sure. And, really enjoyed them so if you maybe roger when you finish that you can tell us how we can find some of your your work and Absolutely. also there's the idea for those of you listening you know you heard roger say earlier i've i learned to recite so there's all kinds of ways of, mm-hmm. of presenting the story the stories you know in an or, oral way you can recite them you can memorize them you can tell them you you can speak them in lots and lots of different fashions. And so it's important for you out there listening. And when you hear Roger read, I think he's ready now. I, I, I can sense it. When you, you have a style yourself, you have an indigenous voice that belongs only okay. to you. It's there. It, you were born with it and people will, will re- recognize your voice for all of your life. 
And there's a great power in that. And I think it's worth trusting your voice, yes. no matter what it sounds like. Yes. And now, Roger, I see you're ready to offer us something, so I'll turn it back to you. This is a fairly recent, as you might imagine, the, the, the time we live in right now, the, the, the pandemic and the rebellion that has moved our nation in many, many ways have combined during our various periods of quarantine to put memory under pressure, if you will. I end up writing this one because a gentleman by the name of Ernesto Mercer, who is himself quite a great poet and a friend who I'm mostly in contact with now on Facebook, asked a question on Facebook about Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam, which was a, a band when I was 17 and 18, had one of the great hit songs of my life. When Ernesto asks about Lisa Lisa, the last great plague is what comes to mind. Curtis was there. Barrington was there. Lear too. Marcia was there and I may or may not have already known I was in love. Lauren and Liesl were there. Randall was there. We were all about to be epic. This was my swan song, little more than a year to go before I became another thing entirely. Immigrant, scrub, trick, unskilled worker, inner city renter, black boy, coconut, but for now I was still a legend. Amitaph was battling sin at the Tranquility Tennis Courts. I had a high top fade, oversized red and black, broadband striped shirt buttoned up right to the neck, baggy shorts and multicolored espadrilles, legend. I wonder if I take you home, will you still be in love, baby? because I need you tonight. And in comes the cowbell, a signal made for us to snake like we were made entirely of Trinidad crude, slick and black. We had just come from choir practice and we may or may not have harmonized our good young fortune and laughed. I want to say who I did take home that night, but it's unimportant now. And Marcia and I were not yet in love. I know because Curtis was still alive and that might have been the last of the epic jams we saw him at before he disappeared for a few months, spoke with me cryptically on the phone, then was dead, AIDS, left days to rot in the hospital because he was the third person to ever die that way in Trinidad and no one wanted to touch him. The streets are empty. A disease sweeps the planet like kudzu. Refresh your browser and see the numbers double and double again. Stories ending, families and friends beginning the long work, freezing what they know of a beloved in a final moment for all eternity. No one wants to touch anyone else and thank God for that, if not for the beloveds we will leave in moments frozen forever, untouched, unlike the way Marcia leaned against me and let my hands be on her hips as we moved together, oil and oil, on a night we were maybe beginning to be in love. We, of course, unkillable, thought there was no border that could end the beauty we were on those courts. So much black sweat and song, so much still alive. Lisa, Lisa and Cult Jam, even the name of the crew, epic. We, Trinidadian, and always searching for a wave of Saga Boy flex on which to ride. Miss Velez called herself by her first name, twice, the kind of flam we could get with in 1986. We thought we were worthy of her, our friend, that night beside us, undiagnosed and dying, and dancing, and singing the tropical night away. 34 years and a couple thousand miles away, the city as quiet as the start of war. Everyone you've ever loved is rushing into your head. The levees of daily bustle broken by the silent flood. People are beginning to die without ceremony. The only comforts, memory screaming in on their throttles of drum, bass, iron, and the pathos of a brazen woman's voice. You're preparing to be epic again, and black, slick, immigrant. The borders to return home are closed. You and your father sing old Calypso to each other across the airwaves. There is nowhere else to be you and sing and dance, but where you are. Thank you, Roger. 
as you were doing that, I was thinking the theme that I'm hearing, loss, gain, grief, and joy. You're drawing an immediacy in the poetry, energy in the poetry that comes from the details, the little bitty things all put together like puzzle pieces on a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. As you well know, some of what you're always doing in a poem is trying to make connections so that the living you're doing makes sense. It is easy to live in the time we exist in now and not know how to make sense of it. And now I'm at the age where I have children of my own who are living through this plague and students of my own who are living through this plague. And they believe what rotten luck I have to be living through this time. And then you remember, we've all lived through some plague that at that moment seemed to be the worst thing ever. I was turning 18 and 19 and 20 at a time when to make love could be understood as death. I'm like, are you kidding me? That was a thing that we couldn't fathom at that point either. And we were looking around and finding people dying around us then too. Certainly different from the coronavirus. I'm not trying to exactly equate them at all, but the sense of fear, the sense of um, what have we done to the world is certainly very similar. And in the middle of that, we're trying to live at the same time. We're mad at the young people who are going out without masks and going to the bars or whatever as if we stopped making love in the late 80s and early 90s, as if we stopped having unprotected sex at that time. Very many of us did not. Very many of us were responsible. Very many of us did not. I was 36 when that, in 1986, when the AIDS epidemic emerged out of, out of those places in San Francisco and New York. And I remember feeling the same fear. I was terrified that if I had some sort of embracing love with somebody, I would die. I thought it was going to engulf the entire world. And in many ways, it engulfed millions. And in all fairness to science that has brought much of the AIDS epidemic under control in places all over the world now, it is not under control. And so we have to remember like how to try to remain human. I think the thing about the coronavirus, of course, is that it forecloses on touch, and that is tragic. AIDS didn't foreclose on casual touch. It was certainly tragic, but it didn't foreclose on casual touch. And, but this forecloses on casual touch in a way that is a very, very tragic, telling sort of symbology of our time. If within the American context, you also factor in the political reality. At least for the purposes of this poem, in reaching back to think about Ernesto's question about Lisa, Lisa and Cult Jam, what I found in that celebratory moment was that we had begun to negotiate a massive tragedy at that point as well, that we simply lived through. For that matter, I could say also, the very next moment I came to New York City that was still very much in the middle of the crack epidemic, right? Which is another thing too. And a New York City that was still suffering the worst of the Rockefeller laws and mass incarceration. And so one of the things I learned was that the fellas I was seeing on the street who I was playing ball with or drinking 40s with on the corner, when they disappeared, they were going upstate to prison. I didn't learn that until late in the 90s when I started to work in prisons and started literally seeing people I had seen on the corner. So the point I'm making about of this is we will survive. And part of that survival is about finding the corollary moments of joy to keep us human in it, to extend that touch where that touch is impossible. And I was thinking of the lack of touch because of the coronavirus now. The touch is gone. At first, it, it was okay. But now it's been going on so long, I feel yeah. an, an ache almost. I'm aching yeah. to just, yeah. <sighs> and yet I know yeah. I can't. It's like there's a glass wall there. And then I was thinking about New York in the 80s. I remember I went down to visit a buddy of mine. His name was Bill Funderburg, and he lived in 
<laughs> an alphabet city, uh-huh. okay, Avenue B or something in, in yeah, yeah, yeah. 87, 88, maybe. And I went to see Bill and remember walking through that area. And it was an edgy area at the time. You could see the problems right there on the corner. That's all changed. It's moved on and other struggles have taken its place. Absolutely. Absolutely. At the end of the day, it's a way to stay sane, right? I feel that sanity maker, people find their different ways, right? The ability not just use language, but make language, which is also what poetry does, is a massive fortune to have at my disposal in this moment. And one of my struggles about the period of quarantine and and all the things that have come with it and the guilt about if I'm spending enough time on my children and all of those things is that I have this tool. I have this, this one tool that allows me to invent ways to make sense of what I'm experiencing. I think making sense of what we are experiencing is a wonderful note to close this conversation on. Before we say goodbye, can you tell folks how to get in touch with you, follow you, reach you? I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at Roger Bonnier, R-O-G-E-R-B-O-N-A-I-R. Um, that's Instagram. Where, where else am I? I'm on Twitter also as Roger Bonnier, R-O-G-E-R-B-O-N-A-I-R. I have some books out there in the world. Where Brooklyn at? Bury My Clothes, Gully. But you can find those things on Amazon or by contacting me. And anybody out there listening, if you would like to reach out to Roger and you're not able to, to contact Roger through any of those platforms, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I can connect you right away with Roger. Roger, no problem. So, Roger, I thank you so much for being with us. And I really appreciate your time. And if you have a closing comment, you're welcome to say that now or you can just say goodbye. I just want everybody to live and live well and goodbye. Thank you so much, Roger. We have about 20 more minutes before the top of the hour. And since we're on the subject of poetry, let's go up to the top of the hour with another short interview I did about three years ago with my friend and poet Ocean Bong. Ocean was in Taos for the Taos Poetry Festival. And on Saturday morning before the festival started, Ocean and I sat down on Allegra Houston's front porch and did this interview. I began the interview by asking Ocean to describe the environment he's in, so we'll pick it up there. There's horizons after horizons piled on top of one another, and I'm looking at these beautiful blue mountains, uh, and it just seems like something that is so uh, conducive and forgiving to the creative mind. I think oftentimes in cities, the sounds are always uh, competing with your thoughts. A landscape like this is, in a way, a canvas in which your mind is allowed to roam and to continue to uh, explore itself and stretch out. And I didn't expect that to happen. When I came here, and it's been the past four or five days, uh, my mind has just been reeling. And I can see why Georgia O'Keeffe decided to set roots here, among other great, great writers and artists. How do you draw from the circumstances around you pay attention to the world i think you know oftentimes we have this weird sense that uh, creative creativity comes from this this inspired moment even the word inspiration comes from the greek root of to be braved into um but and so we often that we're expecting this this eureka moment this light bulb flashing coming on but i think it's actually a lot more mundane um painstaking but also less as less glamorous than that. I think just paying attention to the minutia of your environment with the faith that at any given moment something can happen, even if it's just stillness, something can come out of that. In the workshop that you taught, you talked about how you have a different view of work. Work is very interesting. I think I come from a family of rice farmers and I think it's very important to me that work, even creative work, remains uh, and is focused on the body, uh, work coming from the body, moving through the body. And I try to resist uh, notions of production, 
where you know I, I don't want to pressure myself to produce a certain amount of pages, a certain amount of words. We often hear uh, how creative work is often qualified through quantity, and I think it's often arbitrary because no matter how many words you have, no matter how many pages you have, if you haven't done the quote-unquote work of asking those questions, uh, pushing yourself to interrogate the wonders and joys of your subjects, then the work has not actually been done. So I take myself away from actually writing or producing, and I put the work in my body. I'll take ideas and subjects. I go on walks, I, or even just, my best lines come when I'm doing dishes, believe it or not. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Talk about work, you know, uh, cleaning the house or whatnot. And just constantly paying attention and caring for your obsessions, nurturing them, watering them. You know, you talk about irrigation, and I think that's what it is. Creative work is irrigating your mind, irrigating your subjects and your themes with questions that propel you forward, that enrich uh, your project, rather than just sitting down and telling, oh, well, I better get, you know, 10 or 20 pages down today or else I'm a failure. You know, oftentimes that's how we think. And I think that's quite toxic to the creative mind. And you and I have talked a bit about our rural backgrounds. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like for you to talk just a little bit about growing up with that rural mindset and how, how does that inform the work you do now? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You know, my grandfather is an American veteran and he met my grandmother when he was serving in Vietnam. And it was very strange that uh, neither of them had been to the big city in their respective countries. My grandmother was from uh, Gokam in the rice paddies. My grandfather was in rural Michigan, where he would step out on his front porch and there'll be no other lights for miles. And it's just fields, fields of wheat and corn. And it, Saigon was the first metropolis that they've ever stepped into. And despite not knowing the language to speak to one another, my grandfather didn't know Vietnamese, my grandmother didn't know English, they understood each other through the memory of where they came from. I think they were able to joke and laugh about you know, the ridiculousness of city life um, coming from their roots. And that was their bond. And, and ultimately, they fell in love from those uh, roots. And, and so I, to me, I always carried that mindset with me because that's the morals you know it's not just the landscape it's the morals it's the values that come out of that uh, for better or for worse um, it's just who how we are made up and you know we were talking and mm -hmm. you, you said that even to this day you know you, you feel so guilty going to a fancy restaurant when you can cook so well at home you know and I, I feel the same way even though we could afford these luxuries that our our parents couldn't have we still hear them talking in our head you know oh this you know, for this much, or fifty dollars for this, you know, I could do so. We can hear them, and and I think that never really leaves us. Yeah, I remember when I was growing up, my grandmother would make German chocolate cake, mm. and I was so excited to get the German chocolate cake, and I would go out to her place, and and she would cut a tiny sliver, because she was determined to make that German chocolate cake last for two weeks. Today we made breakfast. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I cooked a dozen eggs and made all kinds of quinoa and stuff. Yeah. Served it, and I felt so so tidy. It's pride too. It is, it still instills in us a sense of pride. I I love that. You know, I think I think that a lot of Americans are that way. You know, sometimes we think that the metropolis is the only place where things are worthwhile or things are new and fresh uh, and valuable. But I think a lot of Americans perhaps come from these rural roots and they have to hide it. They have to perform the metropolis vernacular and suppress their own. And, and it's, it's very interesting to see even myself moving from one space to another and code switching, if you will. You grew up in Hartford, mm -hmm. so that was not, not country, nor is no. New York. So no. you, would it be fair to say that the country you remember is the country of your grandmother's stories rather than your own personal experience? Absolutely, absolutely. And like I said, it was the, the morals and values of the country and even the, the accent, right? We talked about this. I the, think that's a great story. The, the accent of, uh, you know, the whole time growing up, I thought I was speaking Vietnamese, just like any other Vietnamese person. But... When I was on a panel of Vietnamese writers, Vietnamese-American writers, uh, we had uh, a question proposed to us at the end, and everybody answered in their Vietnamese, 
And I realized how different it was from mine. And I realized that their Vietnamese was the educated Vietnamese. It's the Harvard Vietnamese, right? <laughs> and I was, and then I said, I said, oh Lord! I looked in my head and I said, well, the only Vietnamese I got is the Appalachian. <laughs> exactly like what right? book yeah. my. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh Lord, here we go. They're not, you know, they're in for it here, you know. So when it came my turn, I just spoke the only Vietnamese I knew, and in English I'm quite articulate. And so when I started speaking, I saw everyone in the audience sort of take a little jolt <laughs> and, 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 and my uh, the people on my panel they turned to me a, a bit and then I can imagine them thinking who the heck let this guy, let this country bumpkin in you know <laughs> and it sounded like I was in the backwoods you know uh, but that's all, the only Vietnamese I knew I'm proud of that because that is my truth and that is my first language that is my mother tongue even though it's it's sort of breached uh, sort of social uh, uh, moments and borders um, I'm okay with that I actually think it's the outsiders people who speaking a dialect or a vernacular outside of the standard that are most innovative like for example my mother often says and I don't even know if this is an actual Vietnamese word you can find this in a dictionary but oftentimes because of a limited vocabulary, my family and the people from my village would sort of have emotional uh, onomatopoeias, mm -hmm. if you will, right? So like bang is an onomatopoeia. There's emotional ones that Vietnamese do. So like if you're confused, you would say, galofo, fuckfo. <laughs> She's galofo, fuckfo, right? And that's that's one word that they would just say. So it's just, it's just all of those syllables yeah. are just one word. Yeah, and Vietnamese is monosyllabic, right? But it kind of broke the rules in itself when it says make up that sound, and you can feel it. You can you can actually feel chaos and disorientation. It sounds like a butterfly careening in the fields. It's galofa, right? And again and again, there's all these emo emotional amonopias to describe things that are more accurate, mm -hmm. I think, I feel, bodily, sonically, than the definition uh, itself. And so people are always inventing uh, new ways to, to speak. I grew up, of course, in Hartford, in a, a predominantly black community when I arrived in America. And what we tell one another there, when we instead of hello or how are you, is what's good. And it's very telling. You can tell about the lives of the people when, how they greet each other because it's a rough neighborhood. There's a lot of poverty. Uh, many people are down and out and don't have jobs, and it's tough. It's almost as if pain is a given. We, we know there's pain, so we want to know what's good off the bat. I think it's a very beautiful way to communicate with one another that I want to introduce myself with knowing what's your best, mm -hmm. right? What is your best? Because it's, it's been rough for everyone. And so we say, hey, what's good? Hey, what's good? You know, and then you go from there. It's always the outsiders who are innovating language and making it exciting. You have some traction in your work. We came home last night and I read your wonderful essay in The New Yorker. So, oh, yeah. so you're, you're, finding, <laughs> thing, yeah. you're finding your way into all kinds of recognition. At the top level of what poets aspire to, could you talk a little bit about how you've enjoyed being able to work at that level and be recognized at that level and, and talk about what your goals are as a poet with the kind of notice that you've been getting? I know I've read the New Yorker articles about you. I've, you've been reviewed in the New York Times. You're on NPR, all, all of the venues. Yeah. How are you working with that? What is your goal now that you have a platform that large? Um, I don't think my goal has ever changed. I think I, I've, I'm surprised. I don't think any poet is foolish enough to expect to, to be in these spaces. You know, you, you, you gear yourself with rejections, and I myself get rejected all the time. I mean, that's the life of the poet. You know, what you see is just the small, brief moments, often very lucky moments. My goals have never changed. I think for me as a writer, uh, language is an act of communication. Poetry is an act of communication. Um, otherwise, I would write in my journal, and that would be okay, too. But I, did, I, I made the commitment to communicate with my fellow human beings. And the way I see it is that these venues are means of that communication. It gets more eyes on it. I can speak to more people. And beyond that, that's the, the only value that I really see. And I, I don't see any of the prestige, although I realize that's all there. I see these venues as just means of transport. Um, very good means, respectable means of transport, but 
that's what it is to me. Um, if, if you're riding on the subway, you get on and then you focus on where you need to go. You don't stay on the subway and check it out or you don't <laughs> examine it. Oh, should I live here? Is this, uh, what, 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 what kind of chairs, what kind of plastic are these chairs made of or what have you, you know? You just get on and when it's time to get off, you get off. And that's what I see publication is. I, I send something to something. I say, is this a good vehicle? Is this a good bus? Is this a good train? And if it's good enough, I'll get on and I'll get, I'll get to where I need to go, find my people, and then continue. I, I don't want to be attached to uh, the prestige because that is abstract and it's not a potent place to create new work. So in, in closing, I'd like to ask you to read one of your pieces. All right. Well, this what we've been talking about fields and and this uh, this little piece was me imagining my parents at the moment of my conception. They spent a lot of their times in the field because it was where they had privacy at night. And I, I, I imagine many people from rural places can recognize this, that the night and the field is their room, their moment of intimate space. Like anyone else, they fled there and, and hid from adults and is where they, they were able to love each other. And of course, you know, there's a biblical uh, references to Eden as well. That's always on my mind. That's the Western influence. A little closer to the edge. Young enough to believe nothing will change them. They step hand in hand into the bomb crater. The night full of black teeth. His full Rolex weeks from shattering against her cheek, now dims like a miniature moon behind her hair. In this version, the snake is headless, stilled like a cord unraveled from the lover's ankles. He lifts her white cotton skirt, revealing another hour, his hand, his hands, the syllables inside them. O oh, Father, O oh, foreshadow, press into her as the field shreds itself with cricket cries. Show me how ruin makes a home out of hip bones. O oh, Mother, O oh, Minute Hand, teach me how to hold a man the way thirst holds water. Let every river envy our mouths. Let every kiss hit the body like a season, where apples thunder the earth with red hooves. And I am your son. Well, my friends, that concludes our hour with Roger Bonaragar and Ocean Vong. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations with wonderful poets like Roger and Ocean and other people I've had on the show over the years. Of course, the show is called Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're sponsored by Twice Five Miles Guides, the stuff nobody teaches you. Little bits of information to get your work over the finish line, that creative work you have spent so much time building and, and making. Twice5miles.com. If you'd like to know more about that, you can reach me, Nave, at jamesnave.com. Would love to hear from you. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I really do appreciate your work. WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for all the work you do at WPVM-FM. If any of you listening would like to learn more about community radio, WPVMFM.org. You will find lots of information about what we do, broadcasting from Wall Street in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. You will also find a donation button. If you feel so moved, we would appreciate a contribution. It helps us stay on the air 24 hours a day. Finally, thank you for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I hope you listen in again next time. Until then, be well.